Hello, and welcome to our discussion, The Goldilocks Training Dilemma, Does It Fit? I'm Lisa Dishman, and today we're going to talk Goldilocks. Well, not exactly, but we're going to dig into what size is just right as it relates to training and how employers can make certain that their hard-won training investments are maximized, especially when it comes to class size. Before we dig in, I want to introduce my colleague, Kyle Maldonar, one of ETS's most prolific trainers, who's joining me today and has just wrote an article on this subject. We'll link to Kyle's article and this podcast on our website. A bit about Kyle. Prior to joining EPS, Kyle spent her professional career in the financial services, manufacturing, and hospitality industries with emphasis on investigations, policy development and implementation, and of course, training. Kyle held a position of Director of Human Resources at a New York City real estate company and spent 17 years at Lehman Brothers, holding a number of executive roles in human resources. Prior to Lehman, Kyle practiced employment law with Jackson Lewis, where she counseled employers on fair employment practices and affirmative action obligations and plan preparation. Kyle is admitted to practice law in New York State. She received her BA from Wells College and her law degree from the State University of New York at Buffalo. Welcome, Kyle. Thanks, Lisa. You indicated, Kyle, in your article that there are many things to consider in planning a training initiative, and we've covered a lot of them in a previous podcast, Everything You Need to Know in Planning Your Next Training Initiative, that listeners can also find in our Real Solutions iTunes feed. We're going to focus on class size in our discussion today, but could you recap for us just briefly, other than class size, what are some of the other considerations that employers really need to take into account when they're planning a training initiative? Well, Lisa, it's such an investment. You're talking about time, you're talking about money, and you wanna make sure you get the best value for your investment. Um, My comments assume you've already made the decision to do live training, which in my experience is the most effective training. But you wanna consider these other, other factors. And just to recap a little bit, Um, You want to think about why you're doing it. Are there legal considerations? Uh, As many of you know, the law provides that employers prevent discrimination, including harassment. One of the best ways to do that is to do training with all of your employees. Also, there's some states, including California and Connecticut, where training for supervisors is actually required. So make sure you understand what the legal obligations are in your state. Um, You also want to think about best practices. You want people to be knowledgeable about the company policies and expectations for interactions with coworkers, very much the way you'd want them to be knowledgeable about the the other skills they need to know to do their job. Um, There's economic reasons. It can be really expensive if you get this wrong. And last but not least, certainly, it can be the best defense in litigation to be able to say, We did training to make sure everyone understood the expectations in our workplace. Additionally, you want to have a clear mission. What do we want to communicate? To be able to measure at the end of your training whether you achieved your training goals, it's best to understand where you're starting from. What 
you want to be able to say we have accomplished when it's all done. You want to know who your targeted audience is. Is there a certain group that need to be targeted by position, by department? Is it just for supervisors? Is it supervisors and employees? You want to understand who your target audience is. If your targeted audience is both management and non-management employees, do you train them together or separately? You know, there's a there's a, a varying opinions on this. I like to train people together, mostly because they all have a common language to talk about the issues, and they see each other in that training. But don't forget, you'll need to train your supervisors and managers separately because there are very specific management responsibilities. Location. Do you have a location free from interruption? You know, I'm in New York City, and one of those interruptions you have to guard against is traffic noise. So I'll be doing a training session. Maybe we're only on the fifth floor of a building. The windows are open because it's a spring day, and suddenly you have sirens. You have construction noise. You have subway noise. I, I happen to live right near the Manhattan Bridge. So you may hear Manhattan Bridge traffic in the background, which includes subway noises. So you want to make sure you have a location that's as free from interruption by noise as you possibly can. Next, you want to be able to think about who you're going to have as your trainer. You know, employees will always ask questions in these sessions. Your facilitator needs to have a broad-based experience. So when that question comes up, and maybe it's a little off topic, it can still be answered. Mm-hmm. It can be somebody in-house. It can be somebody externally. Maybe you have legal counsel that you have to the training, although I'll qualify the legal counsel. If there is a potential for litigation, legal counsel will usually want to recuse themselves from the training so they're better able to um, take the lead in the litigation. Um, And you also want to take into consideration, do you have remote employees? How are you going to reach those remote employees? I did training for a company recently, and we had employees in New York City where I was training live, but we also had employees in Singapore, in Tokyo. Uh, There was somebody in India. We had employees in Paris that were joining the call. And less exotically, we had people on the West Coast of the U.S. How do you reach all those employees, either simultaneously or at some later um, delayed time? And that's when webinars become very handy tools. You also want to think about the content. Does the program need to be customized to address very specific issues that commonly occur in your workplace? And it's been my experience that, yes, most employers want a customized presentation so it resonates with the individuals that are participating in the program. Is it designed to be interactive? And the, the best learning experiences are those that are interactive. And you want to make sure that the training is updated to incorporate recent legal developments. One of the last things before size that you want to consider is how often are you going to conduct this training? Many employers will do it one or two years, uh, every one or two years, but especially if there's a change in the law or internal policies, you might want to accelerate and have that training program occur more frequently. So those are some of the factors you'd want to think about even before you think about the size of your class, Lisa. 
it can be a little overwhelming for employers as they, as you indicated, Kyle, the return on investment and the value and achieving your objectives are so important. And especially given often budgetary constraints, that feeds uh, into the employer's decision about class size. Now, you are a very highly experienced trainer. You've probably delivered hundreds of classes at this point. So I know you've had a wide variety of experiences. You've mentioned, you know, training in Manhattan with sirens going off. But in terms of class size, which we're going to focus our discussion for the remainder of the podcast on that, <laughs> give us some of your uh, on-the-go, on-the-job experiences as it relates to class size. I'm guessing you've done extraordinarily large classes, and you've probably done extraordinarily small classes and everything in between. Are there highlights and high points of your training career, Kyle, that would help our listeners develop some insight into what works and what doesn't based on your experience? Sure. I um, I began my career as a trainer uh, more years ago than I like to keep track of at this point. Uh, I was the head of HR at a hotel, and we wanted to introduce customer service training. And I was there. I had a passion for the topic, and I jumped in to facilitate those sessions. Um, I was I was very proud that subsequently that hotel, uh, it happened to be a Marriott hotel, was recognized for uh, customer satisfaction on the surveys that were distributed to uh, customers that were staying at the hotel. Um, subsequently, I introduced respectful workplace training at an investment bank. Uh, Lisa mentioned uh, that I was with uh, Lehman Brothers. We did behavior in the workplace, as we called it back then. I think we'd call it respectful workplace training these days. Um, but I was the head of employee relations there, and that was something that was uh, very near and dear to my heart uh, again. So um, every Monday while at Lehman Brothers, either me or someone else on the employee relations team conducted training for the new employees starting that day. And those groups could be anywhere from 25 to over 100 employees every single week. And we did the training. Um, I facilitated discussions subsequent to that for groups as large as 400. Uh, including a training session that started at 9 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday morning in Las Vegas for 350 senior leaders um, at a retreat for a very large national organization. On the other hand, I have done a number of one-on-one presentations. It goes all over the map, but I think the um, with all that experience, there is a sweet spot in terms of the number of employees you want to have in those sessions recognize that the one-on-ones and very small groups that have a focus um, that's very specific to them, kind of a separate category. But given all of that breadth of experience, is there an optimal class size from your perspective? Sure. Absolutely. If you can get your class to be around 25 employees, that's optimal. You know, that's the size that provides just the best balance between class interaction and managing through a large number of people who need to be trained. And when I say class interaction, you know, with that size audience, 25 people in the room, you're able to generate the class participation and discussion that I find to be so important in the learning process. You know, what people walk out of training with is the memories of the questions people ask and how they were responded to. 
you know, what are the scenarios that you talked about? Those are the things that resonate with people. And when you have a group that's small enough to generate that discussion, yet large enough to have a very diverse kind of interaction, you know, my best scenarios are when one person on one side of the class says, yes, I would do it this way. And somebody on the other side of the class says, but no, you wouldn't want to do it that way because, and then the the interesting debate that pursues from that kind of exchange, those are the great the greatest sessions. Those are the sessions where people are getting the opportunity to be exposed to all the dimensions of the subject you're talking about. So Kyle, let's be really specific. Let's run down the factors that employers must consider when they're determining class size. And it sounds like trying to get to the ideal class size of around 25 people. What are the specific factors that employers really need to consider when they're making that determination? Sure, Lisa. Listen, if you start with the premise that 25 people in a session is optimal, then you need to think about space. So let's let's just start with that premise and think if you can carry it through in your workplace. Do you have enough space to comfortably gather that many people together? And listen, sitting on the radiator for two hours is not comfortable. I've had I've had employers say, listen, I I think I can I can do it. I think I can get like 30 in the room. I, I have a few that might have to stand. Well, standing for two hours is not optimal. That is not an optimal learning experience because 20 minutes in, you're thinking about, man, I sure wish I had some place to sit. And when are we going to have a break? So you're distracted from the presentation. So think about your target target audience. If you If you only have 30 people total to be trained, you might want to push that envelope and do one large session. I would advocate for the two smaller sessions. Because 30 in a room takes you over the limit of, of where I think people can stay focused on the conversation, um, depending, again, on room size. The 15, two, two groups of 15, they're going to get the interaction that is so important in these training sessions. But you have this cost consideration. Everybody has a cost consideration. How large is the investment that you're making in your initiative? If you're going to spend a lot of money on the trainer and the program, then you don't want to skimp on where you're having people sit while they're experiencing this program. You want to maximize the potential for people to have a true learning experience. So think about the material to be covered. What are the objectives and the takeaways most critical to your trainees and the organization? You want to, again, have the best interaction because this material usually is pretty fundamental to who most organizations are. It goes right to the culture of their organization. And last but not least, you're going to be thinking about those mandated requirements I talked about earlier. If you're conducting the training in California where some mandated training must be, quote, unquote, interactive, if you've got 100 people in the room, you are not going to have what anybody would regard as an interactive experience. You also want to think about, is this training mandated by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission or some other government agency in a conciliation agreement that prescribes your group size? So if the EEOC says you've got to do training and you've got to have 25 people at a max in the room, 
you don't want a bunch of rooms full of 50 people because it's not consistent with what they're mandating. So those are some of the things, Lisa, that I think are really important to think about when you're thinking about class size. So many factors to consider, even when it comes to class size um, in and of itself. Are there times, we touched on this just briefly, Kyle, when a small, you mentioned one-on-one, but one-on-ones are a separate category, but are there times when an even smaller class than 25 might make sense? Oh, absolutely. And, and by the way, I don't, I don't want this to be daunting because it's a, it's a fairly easy checklist to go through with your facilitator. Somebody who's skilled at doing this kind of training can help an employer walk through this, think through this, evaluate all these factors pretty quickly. So it, it shouldn't be too scary a prospect. Don't let fear of all these answering all these questions cause you to hold off on training because the training can be so valuable to an organization. But let me go back to your question. You know, it's, it's funny. I recently, uh, as recently as just last week, did training for three people. And you might think, wow, that's really small. Well, the training topic was how to conduct investigations. There was only three people in this organization who ever would conduct investigations. And so it was very targeted, very specific, very interactive um, training that, that worked very well for that group. I've had that, that similarly. Um, I did some ADA training for about, I think it was five people in the room. And their employment counsel that had just recently represented them in an ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, claim. He joined the session as well. And we did a very interactive, how do we solve for these kind of problems that arise in your workplace? Did it foundational? This is what the law says. And then we spent most of our time talking about a real practical, here's some scenarios. How do you solve for these situations, given the workplace constraints that you folks have dealing with Americans with Disabilities Act issues? And it was a very effective kind of training program for a very targeted, specific group. Uh, there are just some topics and some material that requires a depth of knowledge and a depth of interaction that, that smaller classes will lend themselves to. Let me take a bigger picture question. Let's say I'm an employer and I really just want my employees to hear the basics of harassment and discrimination. I want to be able to prove that we complied, that we can defend ourselves in a lawsuit and say we trained our people. Can't I do just one enormous training and knock out that very simple objective? Well, of course you can do that. And I will I will confess that I've had employers that I know are doing exactly that. So two things. First of all, that doesn't change how I present the program as a facilitator. Um, you still want to have that rich experience to the degree that you can, regardless of your audience size. But, you know, I would, I would urge any employer thinking about this. If you want meaningful behavioral modification and training that will be deemed adequate, should it be reviewed by an outside agency such as the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, then you want to have a more intimate experience for your employees, an experience that will resonate with them and which they will remember when they're confronted by challenging choices in the workplace, choices that anyone 
in the workplace today might face. You want them to have that background so they're making the right decisions. They're making the right choices. Should I tell this joke? You know what? I remember that training. I remember us talking about this, and I even asked that question. Okay, that's going to influence my decision. I'm not going to tell that joke because it's probably not the right joke to tell. You want that kind of experience. People know when you're just trying to check off the box and maybe maybe your budget or something over which you have no control is dictating that the goal is to make it the best possible experience and it doesn't have to break the budget bank if you would so i've become convinced as an employer that 25 is the right number of trainees in the particular initiative that i'm about to embark on So what will my trainees experience? If I've done my homework, I've selected an experienced trainer with a solid background in the subject matter and who's bringing solid materials to the training session, what is my trainee going to experience, Kyle, in terms of learning, retention, and the classroom experience itself? So listen, if you have 25 people in the room, materials customized for your workforce, a dynamic trainer, and you've introduced the training with strong support from your senior leaders, and that's a big and, and and something I think is really important. You can expect that people will be talking about the scenarios as well as what they learn for days afterwards. You can expect that the trainer will hear from participants in subsequent classes comments and questions that have been generated away from the class among past participants. It's not uncommon when I'm doing a series of training programs in a company for somebody in one of those subsequent classes to say, to say, hey, my buddy was in your Tuesday session, and he said that you said fill in the blank. Is, is that right? Was, did he get that right? You can, you can expect that to happen. You can also expect that the training will resonate with, with your employees in a meaningful way, educating them, empowering them, informing them, all three, about your expectations in the workplace. And isn't that why? you did the training to begin with, and you can anticipate behavior in the workplace influenced by that positive experience. You can anticipate that you will see a behavioral change. And I've I've seen that in organizations where I've been inside the organization, done the training, and watched how people would interact in subsequent uh, interactions. I would see themes from the training picked up in other speeches. It's very gratifying. When it's done right, it really makes an impact on the organization. That's what every employer hopes for, Kyle, creating a more respectful workplace. Thank you so much, and thank you to our listeners for joining us today. You can read Kyle's article on this subject, learn more about EPS services at our website, epspros.com. That's E-P-S pros.com, and you can listen to this podcast and share it with others on both SoundCloud and in iTunes. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. We'd love to hear your feedback and better understand the employment practices challenges you face as an HR or employment law professional, and we hope you'll join us on upcoming podcasts. Thanks again. 